Well, good morning, church. It's um, a joy to be able to worship on the Lord's Day and to be glad in Him. I want to thank our worship team. These past weeks, they have led us so well and have done it with a degree of uh, grace and joy that comes from the Holy Spirit. So thank you, worship team, for that. Let you know that we are anxiously anticipating meeting together again in a socially acceptable COVID-19 manner, whatever that means, in the next few weeks, sooner rather than later, we hope. And know we have a team that's working on that, and they've made plans, they've made preparations, we've ordered materials, so that's on the horizon. So thank you for your patience and your kindness. You've been very faithful as a church to walk beside us and to encourage us as we take the gospel out and care for those around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you that we can sing about the reality of Christ and our sins forgiven, the hope that he brings. And because of the reality of Christ and the resurrection of our Savior, because of the blood atonement of the cross, we say with great joy that we cannot be driven to despair because our names are written on your heart. Our names are graven on your hands. We know that while in heaven you live to intercede for us, Lord Christ, then we have no adversary that can bring any charge against us. So for, in that we are so thankful. Bless us this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This week, uh, a man passed away who has been very instrumental in the life of the church for several decades, a wonderful teacher, an apologist and evangelist from India named Ravi Zacharias. Ravi died at the age of 74, and he has been a valiant spokesman for Christ, going into difficult places to present the gospel and do so very well. He always challenged the church to think. In fact, there is a tribute written about his life by an Anglican evangelical named Alistair McGrath this week. And McGrath said that really the motto of the life of Ravi Zacharias would have been this, helping the believer to think and the thinker to believe. Helping the believer to think and the thinker to believe. And I, when I read that, I thought that should be the prayer of our hearts whenever we open the Word of God, that, Lord, help us to think well. Help us to think well because we believe in thinking well and in thinking biblically that we will live well and there will be joy and certainty in our lives. That's why we've been in 1 Peter talking about resurrection realities and the last few weeks, resurrection responses. And the response, Peter says, to the resurrection of Jesus involves love and also rejoicing. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice, in this salvation you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. You live in a broken, fallen world. But even in the midst of brokenness, you rejoice. And then verses 8 and 9, he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible full of glory. So he says, in the midst of this 
issue, the church that's going into a crisis, going into persecution, he says, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and is replete and full of glory. And I said last week that joy or happiness is the biblically informed response of the child of God to what the Lord has done in their life. It's the biblically informed emotional response of the child of God to, to what the Trinitarian God has done in their life. And I went through reasons for rejoicing in this passage. He does, just doesn't say rejoice. It gives you ample reasons for rejoicing. So, so now I want to do the second part of last week, and that is how to fight for your joy. How to fight for your joy. And it's worth fighting for because as you walk in joy, you, you're able to represent Christ. As you walk in joy and happiness, you're able to experience the freedom of the Lord. As you walk in joy and completeness and human flourishing, you're able to commend the gospel to other people and to represent him in the world as your light so shines before men. So I'm going to give you five reasons. This layered by one big reason on how to fight for your joy. And because it's an application, I'm going to be cross-referencing various verses. So just bear with me. And if you have your Bible open, you may want to flip back and forth or just listen. But, but reasons how we can fight for our joy. Number one, to fight for our joy, we must understand that God is gloriously good and he invites us in to the reality of his joy. That the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as one theologian says, forever has lived in the happy land of the Trinity. And God is good, he is glorious, he's kind, and he invites us into his circle of, of love. He says, embrace the overflow. Creation. The creation is the overflow of the Trinitarian delight that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have in one another. The Bible says that all creation was made by Christ, for Christ, and through Christ. And in Christ, all things hold together. It's the overflow. Our Redemption is the result of the living God taking on humanity and embracing our poverty so that we might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, incredible statement, says this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. You, by his poverty, might become rich. God became a man, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sin, so that we might become rich in him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says this, You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. Not just light, but marvelous light. Light that is resplendent with glory and power and might. So, so his poverty has made us rich. Therefore, we share in his happiness. And we know that he is in the process of restoring us substantially to glory and joy and completeness as he conforms us to Christ by the Holy Spirit. We're being restored. First Peter chapter 2, by your, his stripes you are healed. The Holy Spirit is changing his people. 
In John chapter 7, it says this, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. By this, listen, by this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. But the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Being glorified means he hasn't died and risen from the dead, ascended to heaven, and poured out the Spirit on the church. So, so he says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. That is my birthright, that I am called to rejoice and be glad because God made a beautiful creation, because God redeemed his people on the cross, and because God is restoring us to be the people he's called us to be. Be glad. Fight for that. Fight for that understanding that God is good and God is active and he loves me and he loves you and he's active in, in the world in your life. The second way we fight for our joy as we make application here is to understand this. My perspective in life is largely determined by my focus. My perspective is largely determined by my focus. In Philippians 4, Paul is saying, rejoice. Verse 4. He says, the Lord is at hand. Therefore, let your gentle or reasonable spirit be made known to all. Then he says, pray. And then he says in verse 8, this. He says, if there is anything that is true and honorable and just, or pure, or lovely, or commendable, if anything is excellent and worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The Apostle Paul says, as you rejoice, and as you are gentle and reasonable, and as you pray, then you give yourself over to a life that says anything that's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable. I think on these things. It's a matter of, of, of focus, and my focus determines my perspective. 1 John 1 verse 5 says, God is light, and in him, in him there is no darkness at all. And I want you to get this. God, God is light. That, that's, that's saying that God is pure and whole and glorious and kind and good. John 1 says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The same, same, same word. So if God is light, pure, holy, glorious, good, and there's no darkness in him, then his desires for us come from a heart that is a fountain of overflowing love and benevolence. Therefore, his commands are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, and we walk in them. Behold the goodness of God. You go to the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments start off like this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, before he says, walk this way, he says, remember who I am. Remember what I've done. And that's, that's the same for us today on this side of the cross and the empty tomb and the poured out Holy Spirit. Remember who I am and what I've done. He says, therefore, 
no other gods before you because when you, when you do that, you short-circuit your joy and your usefulness. Don't make yourself an image. Don't make God in your own image, in your own likeness, a God you can tame and control and corral and lead, you, lead around with a rope. No, you, I am God. And so when you make an image or when you worship an image or when you fall into adultery, you short-circuit your flourishing. And then, and then he says this, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And, and, and what he means there is, is this. He said, he says, it's not only that you don't use the name of God in cursing. It means that you take the name of God and the standards of God with great joyful sobriety because in that is flourishing and joy and peace and hope and purpose. So the, the, the Ten Commandments are, are rules for glorious living. It's a standard that we, we walk through and walk by. So, so my perspective is determined, church, by, by my focus. Number three, if I'm to fight for joy, then I must do what happy people do. Let me explain. That comes from a book called Gross National Happiness by a man named Arthur Brooks. I commend Arthur Brooks to you to read. He's a, a good writer. He's a good thinker. But he talks about, he did a, an exhaustive survey. He was a concert cellist. He became a philosopher. Incredible guy. But he did a study of people, and he found that happiness, he says, happy people do certain things. He says, one thing that he says I've observed is that happy people serve other people. Happy people get outside of themselves. Happy people understand the concept of giving your life and your time and your energy and your money away. And Brooks is a Christian, but doesn't write as a, as a Christian apologist all the time. But he could have easily quoted Isaiah 58 that says, if you give yourself to the hungry, verse 10 and 11, if you give yourself to the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom will become like the midday. Now listen to verse 11. It says, if this happens, the Lord will guide you continually and he will satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. So, so you say to people, do you, do you want to be... Do you want to be satisfied in difficult places? Yes. Do you want to have a strength that's physical and vibrant? Yes. Do you want to be like a well-watered garden, like a spring of water? Yes. Then give yourself away. Then care for others. There, there's a book by a guy named Charles Dickens, who's been called one of the two or three greatest writers in the history of the English language. Lived in the 1800s, Charles Dickens wrote a book called Great Expectations. And you've probably read the book or seen one of the film adaptations. But in the book, there's a, a character named Miss Havisham. And Miss Havisham, um, as a young woman, was getting ready for her wedding day. She's getting dressed in her wedding gown. And she's been warned that the man she's going to marry is a charlatan, but she wouldn't listen because she'd given him her, her, her him her heart. And so she's getting dressed and somebody comes in and says, here's a letter. And the basic of the letter says, I, I'm, I'm not marrying you. I'm taking part of your wealth and I'm running out of town. She left, uh, she was left at the altar. And, and from that moment at 20 till nine, 
on a Saturday morning, the wedding's going to be later in the morning, obviously, at 20 till 9, her life stopped. And, and Miss Havisham uh, had all the clocks in her mansion stopped at 20 till, till 9. She wore uh, the, wedding, the same wedding dress every day for several decades with just one shoe on. She pulled her curtains. She, did, she refused to see people sparingly. And she kept the wedding cake there, according to Dickens, for a long time. It must have had a lot of preservatives, but the wedding cake was there. And Miss Havisham. Uh, and and she, she is a statement of, can you see the picture of Miss Havisham? I think I pulled a picture up. Yeah, there she is. Pretty ghastly looking, yeah. Anyway, Miss, Miss Havisham. Um, where was I? Okay. okay. So Martin Luther said that apart from Christ, understand this, apart from Christ, men become curved inward, self-focused, self-driven, self-fulfillment. They're, they're curved inward. The reality of Christ breaks us out of that and frees us to joy and obedience and service and happiness. I believe we live in a culture that doesn't celebrate Miss Havisham because her life was forever stopped in that place, but we celebrate the spirit of Miss Havisham in that we say, you determine your life's goals. You determine the key markers in your life, whether it's 20 to 9 on the day of your wedding when your, your suitor flees with your money or whatever. We celebrate the spirit of saying it's all about me. So we have Self Magazine and Muslim Fitness and Men's Health and so forth and so on. It's all about me, all, all about my desires. It's, it's all about being curved inward. And yet when you read the Bible in just a cursory fashion, I mean, just, just, just kind of go through it, you know, just lightly. You see what Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will find it. He says, you got you know, a, a kernel of wheat that doesn't fall on the ground just reminds by itself. But if it falls on the ground, it produces fruit. Says, so it's, it's so clear from the scripture that if you want to be happy, if you want to fight for happiness, get outside of yourself. And think about other people. Think about serving them in the name of Jesus. And caring for them in the name of Jesus. Fourthly, if I am to fight for happiness, and I could give you 25 things, but just number four, I should embrace the good gifts of God and rejoice in his creation. If, if I am a secularist, now look around at Sometimes I marvel at the number of greens. I'm not an artistic guy, but I walk down the road and I'll say, this, there are 15 different varieties of greens in our trees. So if, if I'm a secularist, I just go, wow, this happened by mistake, by chance. It's pretty cool, but that's the way it is. If you're a believer, you say, that tree is a gift from God. That tree one day will be exponentially more beautiful in the new heavens and the new earth. You look, at, you look at little children running around, and you rejoice in the laughter of children. You, you rejoice in the, 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 the food. You, you rejoice in the good gift. You rejoice in sun. You, 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 it's, it's good. You, you rejoice in the goodness of God. And if I'm to fight for joy, I've got to stand up every day and say, this is from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And there's a statement in 1 Timothy that's somewhat befuddled me at times. And Timothy's talking about in the church, there will be killjoys who work, work their way in the church, and they're going to be these people that say you shouldn't rejoice and you can't be happy. And, and, and this is just, just what he says. Let me read it to you. There'll be certain people who come in who follow deceitful spirits, the teaching of devils. And through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are sealed, seared, seared, burned, that they forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So that they come in and they, they say, you, sh you shouldn't get married. You shouldn't enjoy the, the physical warmth of another person. And you shouldn't eat these foods. And you shouldn't feast. And you shouldn't party. And you shouldn't have four Memorial Day cookouts because you just shouldn't do that. And then Paul gives this statement. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. He says this. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And you go, well, what does that mean? Other than the fact that we should probably pray before we eat. Here's what I think it means. Paul is saying, in order for you not to be engulfed by the beauty of creation, by the good gifts of God, to be taken in, by, by then everything that you do should be under the rubric of thanksgiving to the living God through the word and by prayer. In other words, every gift you receive is made glorious because we give it back to God in worship. God, you give me this and I praise you. And so I believe, church, if we're to fight for joy, we stop and we rejoice and we are glad in the glory of of creation, the gift of friendship. It's worth fighting for. Don't take each other for granted. Don't take the gift of creation for granted. Don't take the, the warmth and the joy and the taste and the sounds for granted. Fifthly, if we are to fight for our joy, we must limit our exposure to media. Uh, I'm just going to be very honest here. Uh, we've got to fight back against the normality of negativity. We live in a time and a culture where the, the normal is negativity. Where people, whether it's on this network or this network, whether it's on the left or on the right or center right or center left, uh, they, they delight seemingly in giving negative news. And I, I just wanted to tell you and encourage you to not let the white noise of CNBC or MSNBC or Fox to be the background of your life. Because if you do, I think you'll slip into despondency. Be aware without being engulfed. Uh, I read a newspaper every day. I go to two or three websites every day, three or four. Uh, I think I know what's going on, but I just don't let myself be sucked into this environment of negativity. I, and I would exhort you to do the same. I, I think uh, several years ago, I, I gave up listening to the news. I just gave it up. I said, I'm not going to do it anymore because it just built 
bad attitudes in my heart. I found myself really intensely disliking certain people. I mean, instead of praying for them, I would just grumble about them. I said, that's not what God has saved me to do. So I, I say you've got to fight against the normality of negativity. I was reading an article recently by a, a, well, a well-spoken young man in his early 30s. and He's talking about the last 20 years, the people who have been raised in the last 20 years, his contemporaries have lived in a time engulfed in crisis and pain and sorrow. And how being raised in America post-2001 has been an incredibly difficult and horrendous experience because of gun violence, climate change, and economic chaos. And I, I just took back and I, I thought, you know, we know that statistically gun violence is the last two decades has not been as extreme as it has been in the previous 70 years. We know that. And, and economically, we've done very well in many ways. I mean, this COVID-19 is going to put a wrinkle in that. But, but I just thought, here's a guy who has bought into a negative spin on history that if you have a brief understanding, I mean, a brief understanding, I mean, an 11th grade Western Civ understanding of civilization, you understand we've lived, we are living in a golden era. Let me give you an example. If you're, let's say you're born in 1900 and you come of age... 1970, 1918, just in time to go overseas and fight in World War I. 116,000 Americans die in World War I. Almost a million Frenchmen, a million British, one half million Germans. So, so you, you, you come back and you get into your working years and you go through a time of, of prosperity. You have a few, a few kids and, and, then, and then the stock market tra- crash of 1929 and, and the Great Depression hits. And, and then you see your, your, your son go to World War II and, 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 and you come back. But after World War I, you go through the Spanish flu that kills 50 million people. Now that is difficult. George Will always says that he likes to remind people that John D. Rockefeller was the most Wealthy man in the history of modern-day civilization in today's dollars. John D. Rockefeller, who lived in the early 1900s. And George Will says this, but if John D. Rockefeller had a bad toothache, an abscessed tooth, he just had to put up with it. And he says that the modern convenience of this day, John D. Rockefeller would have gladly exchanged millions and millions and millions of dollars to have the luxury and the medical advancement of today. What I'm saying is, is that there's a, a, a normality of negativity where people spin things. And what I'm saying is, don't go there. What I'm saying is you read the scripture, you say, I, I don't know exactly what's going to happen today or tomorrow, but my God, who is reigning as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has told me to pray this prayer, give me this day my daily bread. And I'm going to trust him today. My God, who walked on the face of the earth in the form of a man, said, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. They thrive. And your heavenly Father clothes them. If he clothes birds and lilies this way, how much more will he care for you? So don't be overly concerned about these things. Trust me. I don't know what today or tomorrow means, but I mean, you trust the Lord. And so because of that, there's joy. And, and that which gives joy to all of these things, that which layers everything that we do, is the strong, glorious reality of 
Jesus Christ. Then the fullness of time, God became a man. He lived a perfect life and he showed us how to live. And then he became the Lamb of God on the cross in his passive obedience for us. And he was crucified. He was dead and buried. He rose from the dead, proclaiming that he is God. And he ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, after 40 days. And today he is praying for his church. He has poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people. And he's interceding for us. And he claims us as his own. We're going to close with a hymn entitled, It Is Well With My Soul. It's a powerful hymn, and the story, I'll make it very brief, the story is that a very wealthy evangelical businessman in Chicago sent his wife and four daughters across the Atlantic. He was going to join them. He had been through a terrible economic downturn, but had recovered a little bit, and he was going to vacation with his family in Europe, but the ship that his wife and four daughters were on sank in the Atlantic, and the only one that survived of the five was his wife. All four daughters were killed. So he quickly got in a train and go, went to New York and got on the next ship across the Atlantic. And when they came to the place where his four girls were buried underneath the Atlantic waters, the captain called him to the bridge and said, uh, Mr. Bliss, this is where your daughters went down. And he went back to his cabin, and he wrote a hymn that is one of the most famous hymns in the Christian theology. And, it, and, and, and one stanza goes like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And what he's saying is that I'm just not partially forgiven. I am fully forgiven. I have the hope of heaven. And so in the midst of incredible grief, he was able to say, no matter what happens, good or ill, glorious or difficult, my sin not in part is nailed to the cross. Brothers and sisters, that's where we start and that's where we begin. When we fight for joy, when we fight to represent Christ with a happy countenance that is full of life and full of energy. We run to the cross. We begin there. We glory in that. We rejoice in that. And may God give us the grace to do that as we love our neighbors and love those around us and represent him in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our nation, and to the ends of the earth. Fight for joy. Fight for joy. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we stop now on this Lord's Day to ask you to work in our lives, to, to show us the glory of Christ so that we can fight for joy, to show us the creative energies of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, to show us the self-emptying love of of the Lord Christ who died on the cross for our sins to show us the reformation of character and purpose that you bring to us by the power of the Holy Spirit as we saturate our minds in the word of God and pray for your leadership. So, so Lord, may we say, 
with the hymnist of old. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. So may, may that be our controlling thought. And we thank you for that. And on this weekend, Lord, we, we as Americans just uh, thank you for the sacrifice of men and women who gave their lives for freedom and liberty, which involves freedom of worship, which involves the freedom of expression, which we just take for granted because we live in that environment. But there are countless millions and millions and millions around this world who have no ability to do, to do that. So thank you for letting us live in a land of, of freedom. And may we use that freedom to proclaim Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.